Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.bc. We're thrilled to welcome David Epstein, CEO at CGen. Thank you once again for joining us, David. Hey, thank you for having me. You, you guys do really interesting and fun podcasts, and it's going to be great participating today. Looking forward to our discussion. To help host this episode, I'm joined by a special guest host, Brian Fisk, co-founder and CEO at Mythic Therapeutics. Brian, can you give us a brief intro on yourself and Mythic, please? Absolutely. First off, just wanted to say I'm excited to be back on the podcast with you, Chaz, and very excited to talk to and, and meet David today. So by trading, I'm a PhD in cancer biology, which I did at, at MIT. After my PhD at MIT, I had a stint in venture capital at Flagship Pioneering, where I understand David also had a stint there for a while before founding Mythic independently of Flagship. Founded Mythic about six years ago. Now we are a 30-person company out in Waltham, Massachusetts. And I like to say we're the only ADC company that doesn't work on Laker toxins. What we do work on is a antibody-centric platform uh, that allows us to design ADCs that deliver more payload to cancer cells where you want it and less payload to normal cells where you don't. And our lead program is a ADC against a target called CMET for non-small cell lung cancer patients. And that program is currently in a phase one dose escalation. So once again, super excited to be here and excited to meet you, David. Thanks, Brian. And, and David, we'd love to kick things off. You've had a, a wonderful and illustrious career for us. Can you rewind the, the clock and share with our audience a bit more of your background and a crew overview for us today? Yeah, I could talk about this for, for a while. I'm not quite sure where to start, but maybe I'll, I'll rewind you all to fifth grade biology class, elementary school where a teacher uh, offered us extra credit to bring in interesting scientific articles. And I, re I remember cutting out of something called the New Jersey Star-Ledger, which is the local newspaper, an article on how interferon was a, was a miracle drug. And I got my extra credit for bringing in that article. And I think from that moment on, I was just really turned on by the possibilities that altering our biology might mean in terms of giving people better and longer lives. So that's where it all started. Briefly clicked through a couple of things. I also during high school worked for a local pharmacist, ended up getting a bachelor's degree in pharmacy from Rutgers College of Pharmacy, worked for about a year as a pharmacist. You know, interestingly enough, I was working in one of those large chain stores where you do everything from filling prescriptions to you know selling fertilizer and greeting cards. And one day the, the chief pharmacist who had about eight years more experience than I did left his pay stub on, on the, the prescription counter where you're counting the pills. And I recognized that Bob, that was his name, was making $1 an hour more than I was. And I knew it was time to do something else with my career. Yeah, fast, fast forward, I went to Columbia Business School, worked as a consultant for Booz Allen Hamilton, did the pre-merger integration for SmithCon Beecham and a number of other, you know, really interesting projects, then took a job working for Sandoz, which is a predecessor company to Novartis, worked my way up there, there for about 26 years, over which time the teams that I worked with, 
developed and launched more than 30 medicines worldwide. Around the age 54, I took that early retirement from Novartis. I was CEO of the pharma business. I moved back from Switzerland to the U.S. and discovered a uh, really interesting company called Flagship Pioneering. And I had the privilege to help set up a number of new modality companies. I learned what was involved in raising a series A, B, C, taking companies public. And I did that for about six years. And then all of a sudden there was an opportunity in the Pacific Northwest to run what I think is an absolutely incredible company called CGEN. I became CEO of CGEN in November of last year. Fantastic. Thank you, David. And we'd love if you could share with our audience connecting your many experiences. What's been your North Star, the, the common thread tying your work together for you? So, you know, generally I would say, and it's changed over time, but this living at the intersection of science and commercialization for me is just among the most fun thing you can do. So I always look for those opportunities. I love complexity. I love businesses that are global in scale because you get to learn about new people and new cultures. And I like, I get a lot of personal reward from developing people and teams to be, to be high performing. So I always look for those those types of environments. At the end of the day, I'm, you know, I'm a drug developer and commercializer. So moving us into our first topic surrounding your time at Novartis, you mentioned you led Novartis's oncology and molecular diagnostic units, eventually becoming CEO of Novartis Pharmaceuticals. Your impact there was, was realized at the highest of global scales with the course of your career leading to some major development and commercialization feats, over 30 new molecular entities with some phenomenal breakthroughs over the years. As someone who has scaled many impactful therapeutics and they've reached patients and had some phenomenal clinical impact, we'd love to get your insights into what you believe are the key factors that influence the success ultimately in drug development. Yeah, so there's, there's a number. You know, ultimately, it comes down to a, a couple of things. And you'll see this throughout my career. I've tended to want to work on technologies or products where nothing existed before. So really, this idea of discovering a new way to make a medicine, to develop a medicine, a new way to commercialize a medicine, that's always been pretty important to me. It always is higher risk. It's always a bit easier to make. Me too, drug. What we used to say years ago, and you can see how old I am, you know, by you know, sticking an extra methyl group on the drug or, or taking, you know, once a, you know, a three times a day drug and turn it into a twice a day drug. That stuff has never been particularly interesting to me. So at the, at the end, though, it's a couple of things is really do you have a high quality understanding of the science that underlies the reported mechanism of your drug? Do you? Does the, does the molecule you're talking about and what it, whatever modality it is, does it have drug-like properties? Is it going to get to the right place? Is it going to be absorbed? Is it going to be metabolized? How does it accumulate? All the things that you learn, thinking back to my undergraduate education as a pharmacist, you know, to, to, make, to make a drug. And then can you put together uh, the right cross-functional team, sets of experts, who both have the functional understanding to make a drug and also can, can be melded together into a high-functioning team that's really excited by what they're doing and can act together uh, in concert. These, these are all absolutely critical things. And the, one, the other thing I learned subsequent to my Novartis days, what I learned is having more through my flagship time, is the organization needs to be 
financially stable. In other words, it needs to be enough. Investors need to have supplied the company with the right level of capital so that they can survive through what's the inevitable ups and downs in drug discovery and drug, drug development. If you can bring all those things together, you will have a greater than average success rate. It doesn't mean you're going to get it right all the time. There'll be plenty of failures along the way. Biology doesn't always play out the way you, one would hope. And continuing on from your, your time at Novartis, you joined then as an executive partner at Flagship, where you had the opportunity to scale some incredibly newly formed companies. From someone who's been through the life cycle from the earliest, largest stages and served while you're at Flagship on the boards of the Excella Therapeutics using EMMs to treat a broad range of complex diseases related to metabolic health, Avello Biosciences, a clinical stage company now developing a novel platform for oily delivered medicines and Rubius Therapeutics, clinical stage company, again, using engineered red cell therapies. You've seen a broad landscape of, of therapeutics and would love your insights kind of as you think about pursuing innovation across different stages. How do you view kind of the entrepreneurial journey uh, at Flagship as opposed to Novartis and maybe what common threads do you see across those? Yeah. Well, first, let me just speak to the differences. You know, one of the really cool things of working at Flagship, and I suspect some other firms that are set up in a similar manner, is the possibility of attracting, you know, some of the world's best scientists at the same time, very young talent who has not had repeated no answers from their management when they wanted to try something innovative. So this can-do attitude that permeates these young companies and these venture firms is extremely exciting. And it allows them to, ex to do explorations around new ideas that probably would never happen in, in the typical big pharma company. And the interesting thing is that when you start down the road of exploring a crazy idea, once again, one that would never be funded perhaps at the big pharma company, you realize that maybe your first idea wasn't exactly right, but you learned something new in the process, which then yields a medicine that was totally anticipated. So as an example, Moderna was not set up to make vaccines and certainly not vaccines for COVID. But the fact that they got started down a path of setting up a biotech company, you know, at least yielded that possibility to segue or pivot in, into, that, into that new opportunity. So that doesn't happen as much in a big company. On the other hand, in a big company, you have tons of expertise. So once, you know, in a small company, you run into a problem and you're immediately trying to source an expert somewhere around the world that's going to help you figure out, I don't know, why your molecule has PK limitations, why a certain assay doesn't work, why it's difficult to scale up. And inside a company like Novartis, I, I generally had the talent working within the company. So when we decided something was a priority, really nothing, nothing could stop us. So really quite different. And I think managing innovation in both environments is different. There, there are pros and cons to both environments. I'll pass off to Brian now to continue the conversation. Thanks, Chaz. So David, after Flagship, you made the move to CGen, a company that's certainly making waves in the ADC space. What motivated you to lead CGen as CEO? Uh, yeah, so there were a couple of things that motivated me to, to join CGen. You know, first of all, I've been doing venture capital for about six and a half years now. And I really had this desire to get back into an operating role where I could have big impact, preferably globally and preferably 
with a modality of medicine that I thought was going to yield many, many new drugs, you know, in, in the not, not too distant future. Obviously, I wasn't thinking about CGM when, when the opportunity be, you know, opened up largely because it's a very well, it was a very well-run company, a big credit to the uh, previous founder for, for having launched four drugs, building a pipeline, uh, building, uh, starting to build our presence even outside the U.S., including Canada and a number of countries in Europe. Uh, but when the job came open, it made me reflect on my Novartis oncology days and all the things I had learned there about drug development and launching medicines worldwide, which Cijin really needs to do, I believe, as as its next step. And I thought it would be a place I could immediately, I could immediately add value. So you know, I basically put my hand up and said, "This is something where I think the fit." is really, really good. And ultimately, the, the chairman of CGEN agreed and they, they offered me their all. And let me just say simply, I have not at all been disappointed. The company is complex. There's great people working there. The products in the market make meaningful differences for patients. We have uh, at least three assets that are in late stage development that we have global or near global rights for, which are likely to be life changers for cancer patients. And as someone who understands ADCs, we have multiple new waves uh, of ADCs yet to come that use different linkers, different payloads, different targeting moieties, which I think will result in future breakthrough cancer medicines. I think you just started touching upon this, but of the many companies and modalities that you must have had the opportunity to work on, why ADCs and why now? So for, so for me, I like new modalities in general. Uh, I've done microbiome, red blood cells, EMN, small molecules, antibodies, biospecifics, and, and the like. ADCs are a simple concept, uh, but actually hard to pull off. And the concept is really clear. We know chemotherapies work to kill cancer cells. We also know that the limitations of chemotherapies are generally limited by the effects on normal tissue. In other words, you just can't give enough chemo to wipe out the tumor because you're limited by the toxicity of the chemo. The beauty of the ADC is, is that you're bringing more of the drug to the cancer cell, having it internalized in the cancer cell where you know, one hopes that the payload is dropped off and does its work and that that chemo does not freely circulate, certainly not at the level you would if you, you were injecting chemotherapy into, into somebody's vein. My sense was from the approvals that were coming and from watching in particular what CGEN had accomplished, we were at a point where we had learned enough from the early failures as well as the early approvals to make better and better ADCs. And if you look at ADC, for example, deal-making just this year in our industry, I think I read recently that it's, you know, it's, only, it's only May now, there's already been roughly 30 deals done and there could be as many as, as 50 this year because many other drug companies have also come to that same conclusion. We, we know enough now to increase the chance of success. And there's enough creativity around different ways to design ADCs for the future that there's going to be many of these coming to market and many patients will benefit worldwide. Absolutely. Well, speaking of deal-making, the recent announcement of the potential acquisition of CGEN for $43 billion by Pfizer has the potential to generate exciting advancements in the ADC space. Frankly, what a truly momentous milestone and watershed event for ADCs. So we'd love to dive in further, but before we do, 
Could you give us, or could you give our audience a bird's eye view and unpack the acquisition for us from your perspective? So let me just start by saying, I think this acquisition is very, very good for patients in the US and worldwide. You know, one, one of the challenges for a small company, small but mighty company like CGEN, is that you just, you cannot do everything that you would like to do simply because you don't have either the people or the money resources that you'd like to put to bear the products and the programs you have. Bringing in a partner like Pfizer will allow us to, to magnify the innovation, will allow us to become, to create more competition in the marketplace. And I believe to also accelerate the products being available beyond, beyond the markets in which we currently operate. So I, just to get, make it more tangible. One of the things I was working with on my team prior to the deal was how do we expand from the 17 countries where we have a presence, in some cases a very small presence, you know, to the top 25 markets worldwide by the time we would launch our next blockbuster drug, which we hope is a drug called uh, B6A, targets integrin sexus of adotin ADC. How, for, for non-small cell lung cancer, you know, how do we make sure that we're in control of that future and we have a presence in those other markets? The cost of doing so, the time of doing so, the complexity of doing so would be a distraction and would have been frankly hard to do. A company like Pfizer, immediately the synergy there, immediately the possibility of launching in 50, 60, 70 countries, you know, practically overnight becomes relative, relatively easy. Likewise, some of these medicines you can imagine doing multiple pivotal trials against different tumor types, different stages of disease. You can imagine doing those in parallel, but for a company of CGEN size, one has to necessarily make choices because we don't have, we wouldn't have the capital to do everything or the people to do everything that we'd want to do in parallel. A company like Pfizer can prioritize a program and as a result, patients will benefit much sooner. So there is lots of reasons that putting these two companies together will make for a a stronger oncology player that, as I said, will, will increase competition and, and benefit patients in, in multiple ways. But the one thing I do want to say is some people, this, some people have spoken to me post a deal being announced and they sent the equivalent of, Hey, David, we know the story. You were hired to go to CGEN and, you know, sell the company to, uh, to Pfizer. And all I got to do is say to you guys in the, on, on the podcast, on the podcast, that's kind of funny. It doesn't work that way. And even if it did, I'm not that good. So this really was not the near-term plan. Uh, we, I, when I was hired, I was asked to build a world-leading oncology company. My executive committee and I were going down that path. And then, you know, Pfizer came knocking. And you can read about this and all the, all the filed documents for the proxy. Well, I liked how you, how you framed the acquisition as good for patients. I mean, ultimately that's, that's what we're here for is to, to do some good in the world. And there's been a lot of good news in the ADC space recently. You know, in some sense, it feels like we're in an ADC renaissance right now. Uh, ADCs have been developed for over 40 years, but about 80% or more of all ADC approvals have come in the last five years. Do you agree that we're in an ADC renaissance? And if so, is that going to run out of steam soon? Or is this just the beginning? And what role will CGEN play in the future of ADCs? Yeah. So when, when I talked to my team, we describe it as being in the third inning of a nine inning baseball game. So you know, the first one or two generations of ADCs have 
either failed or had been launched. And we're now moving on to making ADCs against different targets with different payloads and better, better linkers. And I don't think those payloads will always be chemotherapy. There's certainly other things that can be, uh, can be delivered to cells. I think there's a cumulative learning that has occurred from those first two generations of products or those first two innings about what to do and what not to do when designing an ADC, which now, while it doesn't guarantee success, it certainly increases the chance of success. And as a result of that, I think you're seeing more companies getting into the space. Some of them will do great, and some of them will make the same mistakes that we probably made in the early days, and, and they won't make it. I do get a little bit nervous when I see the large number of ADC players. It reminds me a little bit of what we saw just a, you know, a year or two, two years ago. When you started to look at the number of, say, gene therapy companies or the number of cell therapy companies, there's, there's almost like this euphoria or fear of missing out uh, that seems to occur with each new modality in terms of drug therapeutics. And we're probably, I don't know exactly where we are on that curve, but we're probably getting to the point where soon enough there'll be, there'll be too many companies. There'll be some disappointments along the way, and then we'll get to a more, more steady state level. Right. Interesting observation. Maybe harkening back to previous generations of, of ADCs and the successes there, CGEN has led development of at least two blockbuster ADCs at Cetris and Padsev. CGEN and its part, CGEN subsequently pursued a next-gen version of Cetris in the clinic, but this next-gen program, at least according to public sources, has now been deprioritized. Uh, on the other hand, the ADC in HER2 from Daiichi and Sankyo is driving a sea change in the HER2 space and will likely re replace the older HER2 ADC cut silo. Broadly speaking, what do you think about the role of first-in-class versus best-in-class ADCs and the role they'll play in the future of oncology is there room for next-gen EDCs against well-validated targets? Uh, I think there is room for next-generation products because we will we will make these we will make these future ADCs to have a wider therapy even a wider therapeutic index. So there's definitely room. We will be filing uh, two INDs later this year where uh, where we are working on next-generation uh, CD30 ADCs. So we're, we we believe there'll be room. For, for better products. Likewise, in the HER2 space, there are multiple companies working on HER2 ADCs. We licensed one such program in, we call it DV. We licensed a different Chinese company called Remigen. We are well along in the development of that product for HER2 positive urothelial uh, cancers. And we will also be studying it in, in breast cancer. I agree with you that, you know, and HER2 is doing very well. It's a very good drug. I may not agree with your assertion that it's going to replace Catsilo per se. I think it will just push Catsilo to a later line of therapy. And, and my my hypothesis is that if you if you were to fast forward five to ten years, you will indeed see you'll see two phenomena. You'll see ADCs being used, different types of ADCs being used in sequence. And in some cases, just like you see chemotherapy being used, you're going to see ADCs being used in combination. Uh, in the in in the same patients in many ways many of the places where traditional chemo is used today there's going to be an opportunity to replace that chemo with an adc which is basically a wider therapeutic index drug very insightful in general and, and with the age yes it will it will be interesting to see how those two drugs play out in the future 
I guess looking beyond just research and development, how have factors such as the rise of biosimilars and the passage of the IRA affected ADCs? Will these changes lead to more or less investment in ADCs in the future? Yeah. Well, I, I do hope the IRA is modified over time. The IRA has constructed has some real limitations, as you know, it, it, set, it, it creates disincentives for, for innovation in a num number of areas, and I think potentially harms patients. I understand the bigger goals of trying to reduce costs of drugs, and I applaud those and would be you know happy to support anybody who wants to make that happen with, with ideas on how to do it simply without, you know, basically making potentially errors in terms of marketplace functioning. Um, just to give you some examples, and I think you've probably heard this on some of your other podcasts, right now, uh, there are negative incentives for developing a small molecule versus a biologic that makes no sense. In the case of ADCs, more generally, and ADCs are regulated as biologics, you run into the problem that when you try to develop a cancer drug, the traditional route of drug development that cancer docs prefer you take or cancer investigators prefer you take is to start with a very sick population that's failed on three, four, even five lines of previous treatments and you usually go into that small population with a new cancer drug hoping to get a rel relatively fast approval. Uh, but if that means that the clock, countdown clock as to the number of years you have before you have a price negotiation starts with the entry of that small indication, uh, then frankly, no one's going to do it anymore. And those patients with last-line disease are going to be bypassed and drugs won't be developed for them. And it, it's awful. It sounds, it's, I mean, it sounds awful, but the reality is no one will be able to afford to study in those patients and then lose the big opportunity. So it's going to force companies to go into riskier, bigger frontline trials earlier and just, as I said, bypass the patients with the advanced disease. And I, I, I think I'm hopeful, I should say, the regs can be tweaked um, to change that. The third thing it's going to do, it's going to incentivize manufacturers to put multiple molecules into the clinic that are virtually the same. You know, there was a, there was a time when we were all trying to move away from me two drugs because it's not a good use of, of anybody's resources. But now because of the way the IRA works, you're better off having one indication per product. So there's a, there's a lot of things that have just perhaps weren't fully thought out. And, and I hope some of that, that will ultimately change. But ADCs in general do a bit better under the IRA than, than many other drugs do. Interesting analysis. So it's about half time on the podcast right now. And we thought we would do a, a rapid fire session on trends and predictions. Uh, so we'd like to take a moment to get your quick thoughts on the ADC space at large. So first question. What is the biggest threat to the future success of ADCs, if there is one? Yeah, I don't think there's a specific threat to ADCs, but making good ADCs takes great science, strong development teams, and obviously launch, launching them well. And I'd advise any company that's developing an ADC to be thoughtful about how they're going to position their product when they do launch a few years out, given that there's going to be a lot more competition in, in the future. So getting that regimen right, for example, is going to be important. Not being the fourth one or fifth one with a you know with a certain target or payload uh, for a certain disease, you need to be very thoughtful about how you develop the drug. So it's it's more of a 
individual ADC risk than I think a category risk. Right. What applications within ADCs would you love to see tackled? Yeah, I'd like to get to the. I'd like to get to a, a point or a place where there are cancers right now that are currently, you know, treated with chemo, but we can actually give people the chance of a, of a cure. So even wider therapeutic index ADCs. We've gotten pretty close with our drug, et cetera, it's our CD30, the dopamine. We have now, you know, overall survival advantage with the product. It's a curative setting. Uh, many, many of these patients do actually, in fact, go on uh, to be cured. But I would say in the other indications where, where we and others are developing ADCs, most of these patients still eventually progress. Uh, so there's a, lot, there's a lot more work to be done. And then last but not least, perhaps there are useful targets where we have not been able to make either a chemotherapeutic or a kinase inhibitor or an antibody that could sufficiently get the drug done. But maybe now we can exploit that target to have another tool uh, to kill the cancer cell. What are some common misconceptions about ADCs? I think based upon the large number of companies coming into the space, that's, people think it's easy to do. And I think on the, on the surface, uh, it seems so, but it's, it's hard work to design them and get dose and schedule correct. Where is the hype most likely to materialize? Topoisomerase targeting ADC payloads or radioconjugates? Uh, if you take a look at an article just recently published, I think it was in BioCentury, they do a landscape review of, of ADCs. There's hype everywhere. And that goes to the earlier point I was trying to make that there's probably this fear of missing out right now. I wouldn't say, I don't think it's hype around a particular payload. I think it's just hype in general. As we come to our final section, we'd love to take a moment to discuss the future of ADCs and more broadly, the decades to come treating cancer. As someone who's seen the evolution of the oncology space throughout your career, what do you think the standard of care will look like once the full potential of ADCs is realized? And what will this mean for patients? So, so I, I am hopeful we get to a day in time when our ability to scan earlier stage disease uh, whether it be by looking for circulating tumor cells or by looking for other, let's call it cancer cell metabolism byproducts in the blood or in the urine, that, you know, we'll detect cancer much earlier than we do today, that these cancers can then be cured with an appropriate cocktail of drugs, hopefully including uh, wide therapeutic index ADCs that can be used in the earliest lines of, of cancer treatment. I think this is all very doable. It's just gonna take some time to play out. Brian, do you have anything to add on this as you think about Mythic and the, the future of ADCs you're building? Yeah, well, Mythic is not yet the size and scope of a Novartis or a CGen, but I certainly would echo David's comments on replacing chemo. I think if today, if you're a patient who is eligible for treatment with an ADC versus chemo or surgery, that's really good news. If we could increase the therapeutic index of the ADCs we have and broaden the set of, set of patients that can take ADCs, particularly lower expressing patients, that would be quite exciting. So that's the future of ADCs I'm excited about right now. And to go into, you know, just to add on to that, it is one of the things we have learned about ADCs that I neglected to say earlier when you asked, we are starting to learn that even low expressors for example, of HER2 can in fact uh, respond. So there's an opportunity in the future, I think, to widen, widen the, the numbers of patients that, that might benefit. Uh, interestingly enough, in our hands, some ADCs, you don't need to select patients at all. 
and other for other ADC agents, going to be really important to have the right biomarker for patients. And do you see anything on the horizon, David, that's going to allow you to treat some of those lower expressing patients better in those cases where ADCs are really only active in high expressors right now? So we even see this with our product DV that I was mentioning earlier for urothelial cancer. It looks like you know, the data is still early, so I don't want to overpromise. But when we look at patients that are HER2 positive uh, bladder cancer patients, while the people with HER2, you know, are the HER2 that are strongly positive seem to respond better, people with you know what would be classified as HER2 low disease are getting really good responses as well although maybe not not as good. And the instinct would be that that's not what you would expect, but in fact, that's what's happening. Right. How much of that um, present, you know, clarity on relationship between target expression and response is due to the drug? And how much of that do you think is limitations on biopsies and diagnostics on that side? And do you see any, you know, improvements on the horizon or investments uh, that you're seeing being made on that side of the equation. Yeah. So the diag- we could probably talk about diagnostics for a long time. There's the quality of the diagnostic, but there's also the interpretation of the diagnostic. And there's something interesting about some ADCs. We know certainly with our Vodotin ADCs, there's a really strong bystander effect. So you don't need to have that many cells that are, that are antigen positive in order to elicit a response. Other ADCs, that may not, that may not be the case. So you may, you may see differential thrust tumors in terms of how strongly positive a patient will, will, will need to be, but also across the drugs based upon the payload. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the most success to date has certainly been seen for payloads with strong bystander effects. Uh, it's a really unique mechanism of action for ADCs versus other potential mechanisms of action in, in oncology. Right. And then last but not least, just to make it even more complicated for everybody, it seems that some ADCs pair really well with the anti-PD1s. Uh, you almost get a, you know, a multiplier effect. And other, in other cases, it's, it's added to the best. And we, there's lots of theories as to why that's the case, but I'm not sure it's fully, that's fully understood yet either. Speaking of combinations with I.O., we're entering into a world now where standard of care for some patients, especially if you start replacing chemo wholesale with ADCs, which I think we're both excited to do, patients will start getting potentially multiple biologics at the same time or serially as part of their their treatment. Those biologics tend to be pretty expensive. How do you think the world is gonna is gonna deal with that going forward? I know some people have talked about financial toxicity, but yeah, how do how do you think about Dealing that, dealing with that in future standard of care. When you certainly, I think what you're you're alluding to is you add several expensive drugs together. Eventually, you get to the point where it's just not affordable for for the system. I think for the individual patient, that may not matter a lot because even the first drug, they've probably maxed out, you know, whatever their their contribution or co or copay is. So I think there's more room than people probably realize to, you know, combine expensive medicines if they, re- if they really provide benefit. And I think that's, that's the question. Then of course, with, with the IRA talking about a good aspect of it, it does in a way after in the case of ADCs, after the 12 years, uh, it will force prices down so that, uh, it is, a, it'll become more affordable to combine drugs. The biggest, the biggest cancer drug expense right now, are the anti PD ones. And if I understand correctly, you know, they will come up for the possibility either by somewhere is there an AD or an IRA discussion 
you know, around 27, 28. So that will create room in some uh, healthcare spend budgets, I believe. Right. On the topic of PD-1s, it maybe is a last question for this section to keep us on time. You mentioned that some indications are doing well with PD-1 indications and, and others aren't. I noticed CGen, as of a couple of years ago, started making a push and has characterized that, you know, Vidotin as a payload and ADCs in general have this immunostimulatory effect that might account for, for certain synergies. Is that line of research continuing to try to understand why certain indications are working and others aren't? Is there any insight there? So in our, in our hands, almost every time we have combined a Vidotin ADC with anti-PD-1, we've seen synergy. We're not sure you're going to see the same thing when you combine, for example, with a Campto or perhaps one of the other payloads that we're working on. If you ask me to explain exactly why, I think it'd still be some hand-waving at this point. Interesting. So it seems like it's payload-specific. I think that's the case. Great. You mentioned baseball as an analogy earlier, David. Uh, what inning do you think you're in on the broader journey uh, to the goal of curing cancer? Oh, I think it's really early. Um, the game has definitely started. We've had a couple of players uh, on base. And I guess every once in a while, if you, we've seen someone actually cross the home plate, we've seen, we've seen tumors like testicular cancer, or chronic myeloid leukemia, and, uh, and Hopkins lymphoma, and a few others where you actually have a pretty good shot at a cure, not a guarantee, but at least a pretty good shot at a cure. But for the vast, vast majority of cancers, you know, we're still looking at five-year survival rates to declare a success. We're getting better, but we're a long way to go. So I don't know how to call that in terms of an inning, but I would just say it's still early days. And outside of ADCs, what tools and technologies are you excited about that may help radically advance the standard of cancer care? Well, I think uh, any tool that helps us diagnose the tumor type and the source of the cancer early is going to be important uh, to the extent we can cut something out. Uh, that's pro probably a, a, a good opportunity. I think there's going to be an opportunity and it's complicated to get to the answer, but there seems to be a uh, good correlation between uh, microbacterium in your gut and the response rates associated with different chemotherapies. I think that's a, an area that needs to be further explored and, and, and taking advantage of. Clearly the idea that we can finally start to make some vaccines that might prevent reoccurrence is starting to take hold. It's starting to see some data come out with the mRNA vaccines and others where uh, if we can diagnose you early, take the tumor out and then give you a vaccine, perhaps the tumor doesn't reoccur for decades, which would be, you know, super, super exciting. There's just, there's just a lot. I mean, when I think about the number of new targets to exploit, uh, yet with kinase inhibitors, with ADCs, with bispecific antibodies, uh, there's so much more to do in cancer treatment. So for our first pie in the sky question, um, what would a world where cancer is cured look like for patients and how do we get here if ever? Well, it would certainly change the way a number of us think about our futures. I can tell you, for example, in my case, all four of my grandparents had, had cancer uh, during their lifetimes, three of them three of them died from it. So I certainly would be an example of someone who would feel a lot better knowing uh, that that was not going to be my fate. I also think it means that we're all spending a lot more of our time and energy treating other diseases and addressing other societal issues. 
uh, cardiovascular diseases still a huge problem. Obesity and the effects associated with obesity, diabetes in particular, are extremely problematic. So I think you would see a world shifting to to get ahead of those those problems as well. But it would be it would be a pretty cool world not to have to say the c word anymore. I agree. Couldn't agree more. Chaz, over to you. Echo the sentiment there as well. Um, before we come to a close, David, our last few questions here to help wrap us up. One of our running series questions we love to ask our guests, and it's a, it's a fun one if you can dream with us, comes from Nobel laureate Dennis Gabor. He says, the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Can you share with us what does inventing the future mean to you? Yeah, I, so I think there's two ways to look at innovation. One is to look at where we are today and think about how to do things better. Those typically result in changes that are adjacent to a current understanding. And there's room for that um, because there's a lot of things that we can do better. I think if one wants to really invent the future, they have to dream in a different kind of way. They have to imagine themselves in a place that's far away from where they are today. And they articulate what that world looks like and then ask the question, what would it take to get here? So just as Clay Siegel likely did when he started uh, CGEN 25 years ago to, to make ADCs, I am sure, although I wasn't there, they had discussions ultimately about how do we bring uh, chemotherapy directly to a cancer cell in order to avoid essentially the off-target effects. And people thought that was insane and it was not doable. But yet, because they had that big vision, they were able to ultimately walk back from that to figure out what they needed to do in terms of a targeting moiety, the right kinds of linker, the right kinds of payload, and, and put together the scientific expertise and then ultimately the expertise of clinicians to run the trials in order to make that vision come true. So people call this blue sky thinking. They talk about a flagship we talked about as to you know, be pioneering know, entirely new white spaces, but it, you have to really divorce yourself from what is today and dream, dream of something that is completely different and, and as crazy as it sounds, you know, walk back from that. We've talked a lot about ADCs and the future of oncology. We'd love to even open it up a little bit wider and talk more about the life sciences universe. What would you characterize as the grand challenges facing life sciences today at large? Yeah, so what, worry, what worries me uh, the most, um, you would think I would say, you know, curing cancer. I certainly care a lot about that, and I think there's lots of good that will come from that. But as I look around, you know, our planet, I worry about many other things. Uh, I'm, I'm privileged enough that my home is, is on, the, on the waterfront, on the ocean. And I got to tell you that the amount of trash that washes up on, on, on the beaches is, of, of, you know, really is shocking, frightening. Uh, and I think one of, you know, mankind's major, major challenges, and I consider this a life science challenge, is to figure out how to depollute the environment in which we are living, growing, and hopefully thriving in. Uh, so that, that's, that, that is a key, key life science challenge. Bringing it back to medicines, there are plenty of diseases or disease states where 
as we do a better job, for example, treating cardiovascular disease or a better job treating cancers, uh, it's inevitable we're going to have more of the diseases that you would typically see even later in life. And I put those in, in, in a couple of categories. One is fibrotic disease, so where organs essentially no longer function. Second is, I would, consider, I would say, all the diseases of, of frailty, uh, sarcopenia and the like, osteoporosis. And then, you know, last but not least, it's a huge, huge problem is the fact that once you reach your 80s, the chance of developing some form of dementia starts growing exponentially. And, and those are life science challenges that need to be taken up with, with great urgency, in my opinion. And let's build on that vision that you shared, David. As you talked about these challenges, where do you see us in biotech in, in 2050? What will that look like? Where will we be? I happen to think, despite as painful as it may feel right now to be, to be working at or running a small biotech company, and I say painful largely because it's hard to get funding right now, the combination of high interest rates, the unexpected impact of the IRA and other things have just made biotech less investable than it was in the not too distant past. Having said that, I think we're at the golden era of being able to understand how to manipulate biology and measure the effects from that manipulation, which tells me that discovery of new medicines, new modalities, uh, new diagnostics is actually going to accelerate from here. I can't think of a more you know, noble profession than working in biotech in terms of doing something with your life that really matters, that can potentially impact hundreds of thousands or millions of people, or maybe even tens of millions of patients worldwide. I think the future is bright. It will feel a lot brighter once we get through the, the current financial crisis. We've touched on some fantastic topics today, David, and so much of your career. How can our listeners learn more about you and your work at CGEN? Up, uh, I, I would direct people to you know cgen.com. They they can follow us on our website. They can go to they look me up on LinkedIn. I'm posting from time to time, both about CGen and an organization called Pelican Harbor Seabird Station, where I'm on the board of an organization that is helping rescue, rehab, and release wildlife in uh, the greater South Florida area to make sure that these animals, these birds, pelicans, and the like are are still here for future generations. So I post about that topic, that topic as well. So those are the two places I would direct you. And Brian, how about yourself and Mythic? You can find Mythic on LinkedIn and myself on LinkedIn and Twitter, as well as mythictx.com. Fantastic. Thank you again, David, for an amazing episode here. We're very grateful for your time and look forward to having you back again on the show here soon. Uh, my pleasure. Keep up the great work. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.